Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of all the news out of China, especially if you subscribe to our daily email newsletter, SupChina Access, or check out SupChina.com for the original reported stories, op-eds, great regular columns, and our growing range of videos and podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. We all know about rare earths, right? They're these elements that are, you know, vitally necessary to the function of modern technological society, but they're terribly scarce, right? I mean, it's right there in the name. And uh, somehow, by some cruel throw of the loaded geological die or fate's capricious stacking of the global mineral distribution card deck, all the rare earths wound up in China, under China's control, controlled by the CCP. And now Beijing has the world by the throat, and it has this near-total monopoly. And just think what would happen if they decided to cut the rest of the world off from these strategically critical metals. Well, even if you recognize that this admittedly somewhat caricatured version of the conventional wisdom gets a lot wrong, I'm betting there's... Still, a whole ton you do not know about rare earths uh, you haven't thought through, certainly not to the extent that our guest today has. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Julie Klinger, who's debunker of myths on rare earths extraordinaire. Julie is assistant professor at the University of Delaware in the Department of Geography and Spatial Sciences. She's also the author of the book, Rare Earth Frontiers, a truly great read that's packed with much-needed historical context on China's near-monopolistic dominance in rare earths, uh, much of it the result of extensive field research in uh, frontier communities that are caught in the churn of state conflict in the quest for mineral extraction and technological advancement. Her book makes a compelling case that to really examine the hows and the whys and the wheres around rare earth mining and processing, uh, really, you have to end up engaging with a bewildering range of, of interrelated issues, uh, geopolitics, environmental pollution, public health, global supply chains. Um, that's only some of the, the maybe some more conspicuous factors, but you dig a bit deeper, as Julie makes very clear, and there are issues of indigeneity and colonialism that are all very much a part of the rare earth story. Uh, I might also add that I think anyone reading this is going to come away, as I did, with a new appreciation for maybe an entirely new understanding of the discipline of geography. Rare Earth Frontiers is quite the tour de force of a book bringing to bear geology and metallurgy and history and political economy and international relations and a whole lot more, all of which, as Julie argues convincingly, is integral to the discipline of geography and all of which gets woven together really impressively in this book. Julie, welcome to Seneca. Hey, Kaiser. Thanks for having me on. I'm happy to be here. All right. Uh, it's a uh, it's, it's fantastic that you could join. Um, so, Julie, uh, let's just jump right in. You, you introduced the book with a, a discussion of the September 2010 incident when, when China blocked a shipment containing rare earths to Japan. And I think that's sort of, you know, it's really an ideal jumping off point, uh, not just for the book, but maybe for our discussion, because so much of the reporting around that incident uh, both revealed what the conventional wisdom was at that point, and I think to a very large extent still is, uh, and it also served, I think, to to spread that narrative, and it really cemented it in a lot of people's minds. So, so maybe we can start with that and paint a picture of of I mean, maybe being careful not to create too much of a straw man uh, of what the conventional wisdom around China and rare earths was, or maybe still is. What it got wrong. Uh, we'll get into what it got wrong, but in due course. But for now, let's let's get the baseline of the conventional wisdom. 
Yeah, baseline. So let's let's rewind back to mid 2010, even just before I, mm-hmm. I would say September 2010. Most of us in the rest of the world are blissfully unaware of what rare earth elements even are. I mean, even though they're around us uh, in our everyday lives, making making the hardware and software of everyday life lighter, faster, stronger. Uh, most of us are completely unaware of the fact that a they're even there, or b that you know we were dependent at the time almost entirely on China for the global supply. And so then there were a series of events <laughs> in late 2010. One of the results was that China withheld some shipments of rare earth elements to Japan. And mm-hmm. uh, one thing led to another. New York Times broke the story that China had, quote unquote, embargoed rare earth elements to Japan. Right. I said, quote unquote, the New York Times didn't say, quote unquote. And so <laughs> what happened is, you know, the Western world woke up one morning and they had to learn a couple of things very quickly. One, what are rare earth elements? Oh, my goodness. It turns out that they are essential for everything. Well, wow. China at the time produced 97 percent of them. And so people made the obvious conclusion that because they're called rare, they must be rare. And a lot of people, you know, really can't be blamed for making that assumption. And also concluded erroneously that China produces most of them because China has most of the geological endowments. And that's just not true. Right. And the third thing that I would like to add is that, you know, an embargo is an official act undertaken by one state against another in a time of war or in the case of a breach of treaty. And what we're talking about, the incident that sort of shook the world was, you know, a delay in shipments from one port in eastern China that was characterized as an embargo and markets freaked out. And the lore has kind of been cemented ever since. Yeah, I mean, it even made its way into like uh, popular consciousness in, in, in fiction, right? It was used as kind of a plot point in, in a number of works of fiction. Uh, how, how did it show up in, in fiction works? Oh, it's amazing, actually. So so let's put on you know our time machine helmets again and travel back to 2010. So early in 2010, I think late 2009, uh, James Cameron's film Avatar was then the highest grossing film of all time. And uh, more people had seen this movie than had seen just about any other movie. And for you're the for the one or two listeners who maybe haven't seen it or heard about it, uh, it's premised on this element called unobtainium, and it looks an awful lot like a rare <laughs> earth element. It's a sort of shiny silver metal. A little on the nose, I mean. <laughs> kind of on the nose. Uh, the premise is that it's essential for it's essential for everything, and uh, people have to go to great lengths to get it, including invading other planets yeah. with indigenous people, and so. This movie, I think, actually primed the public imagination to interpret you know, the realization of our overwhelming dependence on China in a very specific way. Mm. And that is, um, even though even though for you know a decade plus, most of the rest of the world had been dependent on China for rare elements, nobody really cared. Right. Nobody really cared until we kind of woke up to the possibility that maybe maybe this arrangement creates some security concerns. And so so Avatar, I think, kind of primed the public imagination. And so then when, you know, this story was 
reported in the New York Times and then picked up all over the world in this very exaggerated fashion, right? People were talking about how, you know, uh, China, China had the rest of the world in a stranglehold, that China's rare earth mines were characterized as China's secret unobtainium mines, <laughs> right? Rare earths were talked about as the next oil, right? This is, I'm, and I'm not even in the world of fiction here. I'm talking about <laughs> headlines in newspapers. And so, and so this is just excellent fodder for the world of fiction. So there were a number of novels that were written several of which were, were called rare earths or used rare earths as a plot point. And they involved various heisty things of people going to frontier places. And there's elements of sort of Wild West, El Dorado, conquistador fantasies in those. Uh, but, you know, they also served as a plot point in, you know, an episode of House of Cards. Oh, yeah. uh, Call of Duty Black Ops was premised on a future resource war with China, which, by the way, you know, Oliver North and other folks served as you know, consultants for developing the plot of these video games. And so all of this kind of served to really cement in the public imagination, including, uh, you know, among uh, esteemed colleagues in policy who really ought to know better, that China is out to get us because China wants to dominate uh, the global rare earth supply chain. When in fact, <laughs> we have a really interesting situation where on one hand, most of the rest of the world is really not comfortable being dependent on China for uh, most of our rare earth supply. And on the other hand, China does not want to be responsible for depleting its own reserves and supplying the rest of the world with rare earths. Yet, this seemingly very obvious uh, complementary set of interests is completely lost in this sort of geopolitical spectacle. Right, right, right. And this flawed understanding survives very much to this day. I mean, before he left office, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo wrote mm -hmm. uh, a piece about that. Uh, in fact, just the other day, there was a piece in the Financial Times that raises some of these same tropes about uh, Chinese stranglehold and, and all that. And we'll get into all of that later. Um, I guess before we go too much further, we should probably give our listeners a clear sense of just what rare earths are and why they're so important. I mean, we know they're in all this stuff, but I, I don't think, I didn't, I certainly didn't appreciate the extent to which they're in everything. So what what are they in terms of their basic chemistry and uh, what properties do they have that make them so absolutely indispensable? I mean, besides magnetism, which I, I learned the hard way, I mean, these things are wickedly magnetic. So as I was prepping for this, I bought myself some neodymium magnets for my refrigerator, like a pack of 20 of them um, on Amazon. And as I learned while trying to pry one of them off, they adhered to the refrigerator surface uh, more stubbornly than my fingernails adhere to my fingers. <laughs> Ouch. All right. So the term rare earths, which is a misnomer, mm -hmm. um, refers to 17 chemically similar elements. If you can picture the periodic table in your mind's eye, there's the big old chunk at the top. And then there's this little island to the south. Um, and that little island it has two bars. Right. The top bar is the lanthanide series. This is elements number 57 to 71. The lanthanide series is what, say chemists or specialists would call rare earth elements. Also scandium and yttrium, which are higher up in, I guess, like the mainland <laughs> of the periodic table, are also included in the family of rare earths. Right. So there's 15 there and then there's two from the regular periodic table. Yeah. And the reason that they're grouped together is because even though each are distinct, 
they all have these fantastic magnetic and conductive properties, which is why they're really useful, um, say, if you want to make uh, right. a metal alloy that is lighter, but also much stronger, much more heat resistant, like the kind of thing you would need to build a rocket, you know, to launch a spaceship um, mm -hmm. or a weapon. Also, I mean, they really are ubiquitous. So I'll give you an example, the element cerium. So cerium is an element that's used as a signal booster in uh, transoceanic fiber optic cables. So it's thanks to cerium, you know, a little bit of cerium placed every so often in these fiber optic cables enables us to have global internet communication. Also, cerium, when added to glass, imparts this lovely pink color. So, you know, if your grandma has sort of pink glassware around the house, or if you've ever worn rose-colored glasses, chances are that cerium ah. uh, also, um, because of its pigment or its color qualities, it's used in lasers that are essential for precision-guided missiles. So the interesting thing about rare earth elements is that they are so ubiquitous, right? There's not any single sector in which I would say that they are unimportant. Sure. Right. Whether it's scientific instrumentation, medical technologies, medicine, consumer electronics, communications, space tech, uh, energy, and the, the one that we hear most about is the military. Um, and that can kind of dominate the conversation, but they are in fact ubiquitous. So I, I remember in, in a, the chapter that you have, which is excellent about what they are and, and where they're used, you mentioned that the Chinese people call them Weijing or, you know, sort of MSG, right? The Chinese word for, for monosodium glutamate. Yeah. And then next... Well, yeah, the Weijing. The Germans call them spice <laughs> elements. And, and I guess here in the U.S. and in Japan, people talk about them like they compare them to vitamins, right? They're like small quantities of them uh, are needed, but it's, I mean, they're absolutely necessary. So... How not rare are they? I mean, I think it's it's probably the central theme uh, in your book, uh, how so much comes of or is justified by what you call this myth of scarcity. Um, you know, I guess, yeah, one of them is only found in the cores of nuclear reactors, but the rest of them, the other 16, they seem to be quite ubiquitous. I mean, maybe give us a sense for what geological conditions are necessary to produce them, uh, to produce you know, uh, actual deposits. I mean, because they, I think you said there, there are like 800 proven deposits around the world. At least. Something like that. Yeah. Wow. And That's counting. Nuts, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, so, so what, what needs to happen geologically for, for there to be a rare earth deposit coalescing? Oh, yeah. Oh, I love, the, I love this question. Um, so rare earth elements are not at all rare on earth. Um, the reason they're called rare earth elements, it's actually kind of a surprisingly simple explanation. Uh, when uh, they were first identified in the late 1700s, no one had ever seen them before. And so they just made the assumption that they were rare. And the name has stuck. Uh -huh. uh, the earliest citation that I found lamenting this misnomer is from 1907. Wow. And so the rest of us call them rare earth elements, but you know, chemists who, uh, and metallurgists who work with specific elements uh, call the elements by their proper name. Right. You know, I think that they're called rare earth elements that the name sticks around, honestly, because it's sexy. Yeah. And if you call something rare, it uh, mobilizes this whole other set of excitement and uh, it, it's more effective for mobilizing capital and policy changes and things like this. But that doesn't actually reflect uh, their incidence 
on Earth. So um, rare earth elements, most, most of the most common ones we use are really quite abundant. You know, chances are you could go outside and dig around in your yard or dig around in the park down the street and you would find some trace of them um, in the soils or the sand. Um, mm. And uh, this is because rare earth elements are relatively ubiquitous, but the difficult thing about uh, mining them is that higher concentrations require kind of special geological conditions to coalesce. And so if you can picture, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you can picture your, your, your middle school, you know, slice of the earth diagram, <laughs> you know, uh, we've got all of- <laughs> I'm doing that right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> excellent. So, um, so for mineable deposits of rare earth elements to coalesce, what you need are these long, slow, gradual, repeated cycles of heating and cooling of magmas, right, um, below the surface of the earth, mm -hmm. right, just below. And, uh, and what happens over these long, slow processes of gradual heating, gradual cooling is that other elements, they kind of solidify and condense out. And they produce these little like lattices or baskets where rare earth elements, which are kind of like incompatible with each other, uh, can actually solidify together. Hmm. And so the interesting thing about these processes is that, you know, this kind of explains why you tend to find hard rock rare earth elements deposits in places like, so for example, Bayan Oboe, where which is the largest rare earth mine in the world located in Inner Mongolia Autonomous Region in northern China. It was this kind of sugarloaf mountain. For local Mongolian people, it was a sacred site because it looked like a yurt. In other parts of the world, mm -hmm. um, so for example, in Brazil or in the southwestern United States, we might recognize these. We might look at this and think, oh, that kind of looks like a butte. One of my colleagues in Brazil described it very poetically as saying, just imagine that it's a volcano that was never born, right? So it was this chimney of magma ah. that percolated up through the Earth's crust, but never quite broke the surface. And it's in those sort of geological conditions that you get mineable deposits coalescing. And these don't occur everywhere. They tend not to occur right on the edge of tectonic plates because those that's too exciting. It's too hot. There's too much action. Right. They tend to occur sort of closer to the, the middle of uh, plates or cratons. So, Julie, the big question that your book sets out to answer then is that if there are demonstrably hundreds of places on Earth where ample and mineable deposits of rare earths exist, uh, why would the three particular places that you look at, Bayan, Oboe, and Inner Mongolia, which we've already mentioned, San Gabriel de Cachoeira in northwestern Brazil, and the damn moon uh, become so completely central to uh, our mining efforts. You argue that the concept of the frontier is totally central to answering that question. And if I understand your argument correctly, you're basically saying that it's it's no coincidence, it's no mere accident in geography that these places have become such a focus for mining. And it's because they are on the frontier uh, where there are no people who really count as people to the colonizers, where civil society organizations are relatively weak, and these places were then able to become global sacrifice zones, as you put it. So leaving aside the moon for now, how did this happen to places like San Gabriel de Cachoeira and to Bayan Obo? Oh, that's, that's an excellent question. 
So the interesting thing about the geography of rare earth prospecting and mining across the world is that it doesn't neatly map on to where necessarily the best deposits are located. And this is because the same geological conditions under which a mineable deposit of rare earth elements would form can also be the same geological conditions under which mineable deposits of radioactive materials might form. Uh. So in, in the cases where if you're mining uh, rare earths from certain hard rock deposits, which is what we have in you know, Southern California and Bayan Oboe, in Northwestern Brazil, Afghanistan, uh, Greenland, other places, um, the moon even, all of a sudden you have a radioactive waste management situation on your right. hands. And that's very difficult and very expensive to manage well. And so what this, what this has led to over the decades is a sort of gradual migration of the rare earth mining industry out of Western sort of more robustly regulated contexts into frontier areas where, frankly, people have less power of refusal, where environmental enforcement isn't the top priority. Right. And so this has had the effect over the past several decades of concentrating rare earth mining production in just a couple of sites in uh, vulnerable areas in China. But it does also explain why people are really excited about um, mining these things in remote areas because they're less likely to encounter resistance. Right, right, right. I, I would encourage anyone to go onto Google Maps or on Google Earth and look up Bayan Oboe and zoom in on it. It's astonishing. There's these enormous pits. You can see the sort of concentric roads winding down into the middle of these pits. But it's it's really, it's shocking. It's quite the scar on the earth. It's enormous. It, it's, it's astounding. Yeah. yeah. So, so I had no idea that, that for quite some time, from about the mid-60s until all the way up until 1980, California's deserts were where most of the world's rare earths were being mined, uh, and that this, you know, was brought to a halt mainly because, as you say, you know, you produce a, a massive radioactive waste disposal problem. You know, it was the environmental costs. Uh, I think all our listeners who are focused on China uh, are wondering, you know, how did we arrive then at this point where 97% of production was all in China? In other words, you know, what were the actual origins of China's rare earths monopoly? Um, you tell the story uh, in in your chapter two of the book about you know, how Bayan Obo came to be the source of something like close to 50% of the world's rare earths. But, you know, it's a complicated story, but it's really the central one. Uh, it's really kind of the expression of so many of the book's main assertions. So take some time, talk about the history of Bayanobo and how China came to dominate rare earths production. So the interesting thing about the rise and fall of rare earth mining in the U.S., which I think is an important piece of the story, um, is that, you know, initially, like in the early 20th century, uh, early mid 20th century, the U.S. was not particularly interested in mining its own uh, lands for rare earth elements. Um, in the 1950s, in particular, the U.S. was working hard to get monazite sands from India, which India had wanted to prohibit the exportation of monazite sands to the U.S. because monazite sands are a source of radioactive materials, and these were considered strategically significant to uh, the newly independent country right. at the time. And then the, the rare earth facility at 
uh, in Mountain Pass, California. That was actually initially discovered not because people were looking for rare earth elements, but because there were a couple of uranium prospectors right. walking around in the mountains with their Geiger counters. And it just so happened that in addition to, uh, to uranium and other radioactive materials, it happened to contain a lot of rare earth elements, which still in the mid, in the mid 20th century, 1950s, 1960s had a very small, uh, uh, or I, I guess I, I guess I would say they had a comparatively smaller importance. Mm -hmm. Uh, in our contemporary society, but when uh, televisions took off and and that sort of thing, then then demand really increased. Uh -huh. And here's the thing: when when you have a sudden increase in demand for the thing that you're digging out of the earth, there's of course an immediate market signal and a pressure to ramp up production as quickly as possible. And when you're operating under speed in a complex industrial operation, sometimes some corners get cut. And that's exactly what happened to the facility in Mountain Pass, California. So in the 1970s and 1980s, there were a number of spills of radioactive wastewater. There were, at the time, they were piping their wastewater to Ivanpah Dry Lake, which is a national recreation area, and just basically piping it out into the desert for it to evaporate. Oh, God. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, the dust and the residue just blows wherever. <laughs> Yeah. And on top of that, the pipe construction was not particularly great. And so, and, you know, one of the, one example of the corners that were cut is at one point, a section of the pipe was replaced with a smaller section. And so when cleanup crews were, were doing their, their regular cleanup routine, where they basically, basically push a giant scrubber or pipe cleaner through the pipe, uh, they hit this smaller area didn't know that it was because it was actually a smaller diameter, turned up the pressure until the thing exploded. Oh, geez. Right. And as it exploded, it, 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 uh, it sprayed hundreds of thousands of gallons of this wastewater around the desert. And this is, of course, near housing and things like this. And it became a really big deal. Yeah. So, you know, so over the years, there were a number of, of minor incidences like this, and a number of them went unreported. But whenever there were surprise inspections, uh, something would always be found to be awry or amiss. And right around this time, so now we're in the 1980s, heading into the 1990s, U.S.-China relations were opening up, right? China was going through the open up and reform and uh, welcoming Western investment. And there were enterprising folks in the U.S. who were looking to offshore their operations in order to reduce labor costs and environmental liabilities. And, and so one of the things that happened uh, in, in the rare earth industry is that, you know, a, a prominent environmentalist, brother of former President Richard Nixon, had a number of companies that actually helped industrial firms in the U.S. subcontract uh, parts of their operations to China. Oh, I see. We have to understand this within the logic of the time, because right now it's very much in fashion to scold or shake our heads at, you know, the short-sightedness of people who have allowed industry to migrate overseas. But we have to remember that there was a very clear uh, economic and policy incentive oh, for sure. yeah. to do this. And Edward Nixon was an environmentalist. He's credited with 
uh, persuading his brother to you know, issue the executive order to establish the Environmental Protection Agency. And so uh, from his standpoint, based on the archival materials that I've been able to gather, you know, he was very much interested in, you know, preserving America the beautiful. Sure. And the way you do this is by exporting dirty industry. And uh, he happened to be well connected in China. And so the story is he helped subcontract bits and pieces of the rare earth refining process to firms in China eventually over time. But then also had another firm that uh, sold cheaper Chinese rare earth bearing technological components to U.S. firms. Uh-huh. And so one of one of these companies was actually called Great Circle Resources, you know, which is kind of an ingenious name. Sure. And so, you know, he's really a very, a very savvy businessman because he was profiting from both sides of this process of industrial migration out of the U.S. and into China. We could stop there. And that is often where the story stops that, you know, was, uh the U.S. let its industry go, <laughs> but so deindustrialization was happening, you know, in the United States at the same time that you had, you know, uh, China, you know, opening up and reforming, and and uh, was eager to to have foreign investment. At that point, I'm I'm curious though, uh, was Edward Nixon actually offshoring mining, or is it just pro- uh, just processing of rare earths at that point? So what I what I'm able to, what I was able to gather from various archival records is it was just bits and pieces of the process. So in order uh-huh. to, in order to better understand this, um, I think first it's really important to have an appreciation of just how complex and involved it is to refine rare earths. You know, it's at the time it was a, a, a 35 plus step process that involved repeated cycles of heating and cooling and acid baths and high temperatures and, you know, generated lots of wastewater and uh, noxious gases and required lots and lots of energy. Uh, so much so that, you know, under the economic conditions at the time in the late 1980s and into the 1990s, it became cheaper to actually export, um, you know, containers full of minimally processed ores to China to be further processed there. So uh-huh. those were just those were the trade conditions. But the important thing that, and this is an important part of the story that I think is often left out. It's not like, you know, I don't want to paint the picture here that the mining sector is somehow like the textile sector or or the garment sector, uh, where you can uh, pack up shop overnight and reopen it somewhere else. That's, it's much more complex than the mining sector. And so, you know, this should prompt us to ask, well, how is it possible then for this for these complex mining operations requiring advanced engineering, <laughs> chemical and technological know-how for them to migrate to China. And the answer there is that since pretty much the founding of the People's Republic of China in 1949, developing the rare earth metallurgical industry had been a priority right. of the Chinese government and actually was a cornerstone of Sino-Soviet cooperation before before the honeymoon soured in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, Baotou, which um, you know, is the primary processing site for uh, the materials that come out of the Bayan Obo uh, rare earth mine in northern China, this was the flagship Sino-Soviet industrial cooperation site. And the goal was to build a vertically integrated uh, military industrial supply chain. 
so that you would have um, you would have your uh, heavy machinery and artillery and <laughs> industrial manufacturing facilities right next to your mine and your refinery and things like that. You know, it's very sort of like communist planning, uh, self-sufficiency type thing. Sure. It was this idea of the red hinterland, as you call it in the book, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the idea was, you know, as while China and the Soviet Union were getting along, Bauto was a great place because it was sort of safely nestled between uh, these two brotherly, brotherly states. And, you know, if you look at newspapers from the time uh, from Bauto, which were just really fascinating to look at these newspapers from the 1950s that were published in Bauto, uh, it's all about, you know, the, the brotherhood, the solidarity. And in addition to these investments in actual uh, physical infrastructure and industrial infrastructure, there was a really serious investment in building up technological know-how. So people from China went to study in Russia. Russian technicians came to China. People from China also studied in Europe and the U.S. And they brought that knowledge, that metallurgical uh, knowledge, nuclear knowledge, chemical engineering, back to China to work on developing its rare earth capabilities. And all of this happened before the 1980s. There was this really well-developed foundation that provided a landing place for industry that was an industrial interest that were looking to leave the West and go somewhere else. That makes it so clear. I mean, it, all the pieces of this uh, that, that are part of you know this confluence. So Julie, I know there are different types of, of uh, rare earths mining. For example, you know you can extract it from sand or from clay deposits, but uh, I want to I want to look specifically at how it's carried out at an area like Bayanobo uh, in Bauto in Inner Mongolia. What that physical process is like uh, in the hard rock mining? How damaging is that to the physical or to the natural environment? All right. Well, uh, large scale hard rock mining is actually pretty hardcore. Uh, there's a lot of blasting involved, of course. So. Uh, so, for example, when I was when I was in Bayanobo, uh, blasting occurred every morning at 10 a.m. And that this is just something that people in the town knew. And the entire town shook. Uh, you know, the water in your glass shook, the windows rattled. So there's you know, blasting involved. And then and then, of course, once you've blasted a hole in the ground, then you have to pick up the pieces and grind them into smaller bits that can be then uh, ground into something that's kind of got a uniform consistency. And so then uh, once you've got that uniform consistency, then you can start roasting it, subjecting it to acid baths um, or uh, different flotation and separation techniques. Uh, but the thing is, you know, from the moment that you uh, are blasting uh, a hole or a deeper hole in the ground, what you're also doing is you are creating various types of dust pollution. And yeah. this dust contains, it's not just dirt, this dust contains uh, the pulverized elements that are also present. So not just rare earth elements, but also in the case of buying oboe, there are uh, other heavy metals, uh, radioactive materials, and things like fluoride and arsenic that just yeah. happen to be present in the geology of the region. And so, you know, this is, this can be inhaled by people locally if they aren't wearing uh, proper protective gear. And historically, that was the case because respiratory uh, deaths were one of the primary causes of death in the region. But it is also, you know, the dust cloud travels. Right. And so people in the town inhale it. Uh, it settles on grass um, and into the surface water. 
that animals graze on and people eat the animals. And so it just kind of bioaccumulates up the food chain from there. So it's the dust, it's the the wastewater, it's the tailings, it's all of that is is just terribly toxic. Um, So the part of the story that most often gets told, and it should get told, because we should be aware of the environmental footprint that's created by our uh, ubiquitous need, I guess, for rare earth elements. But the other part of the story that often doesn't get told is that, you know, there's been a lot of effort across the research academies and uh government uh, entities in China in order to develop environmentally superior mining and separations technologies. Uh, so much so to the point that, you know, when uh, Linus, uh, the, an Australian rare earth miner, was building uh, their refining facility in Malaysia, uh, the engineering experts that they brought in were from China. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, this yeah. right, and this is because you know for the past many years, China's really been working hard to clean this up because it was it it created such devastation, and people really weren't happy about it, and they let the government know. So we've talked a little bit about the the ghastly human health impacts that it's got, uh, but it sounds like you also poisoned your own liver in the service of research <laughs> at banquets in Baoto, uh, which I know to be really lethal. I mean, just firsthand experience. It's always I'm, I always fear playing shows or whatever in Inner Mongolia because, boy, yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I, I want to hear a, a couple of stories. But I mean, you you were you know you were meeting people from miners to mining millionaires. Um, and then, you know, I think it was like in, in, in one little anecdote you were saying you, you, you then bathe in tap water that was so polluted by the industries that you had sores like breaking out all over your skin. Uh, that's that's pretty crazy. Uh, tell us about what, who are the, the people who were involved and, you know, who's getting uh, rich from, from rare earths mining in, in Bato. Yeah, well, pretty interesting thing happened in the rare earth sector. Um, well, wait a second. Do you want what happened in the rare earth sector or do you want a drinking yeah, both, story? Yeah, both. <laughs> <I want> both. <laughs> Well, yeah. So I will say that uh, you know my 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 first experiences in China were in uh, were in the Northeast, and oh, so you were already hardened and inured to it. Yeah, you know that I, I just so and that's really where the softest spot of my heart is. You know, for um, no offense to the other regions, which you know people defend fiercely, but uh, you know one of the wonderful things that I really appreciate about people who live in the frigid northern climates of China is that when it's cold, you 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 eat a lot and you drink a lot. Otherwise, life is not interesting. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I had more than my more than my fair share of uh, baijiu and other various homemade fermented concoctions. Um, I mean, the interesting thing about doing research in this place, I, I think this is you know this is something I just need to be upfront about. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a tall white woman who speaks Mandarin, and so I was just sort of treated as an honorary male. Um, which meant that I was expected to drink. Like, there was no getting out of drinking. <laughs> um, and right, so, right, you know, right. this. Uh, there were times when this was a lot of fun, you know, sitting around on small stools in like a small corner of the city with, um, you know, with people who had spent their lives doing, doing hard labor and hearing their stories. It was just such a privilege, an absolute privilege to be there and um, to be trusted with their stories. And then, you know, there were other, other ordeals that were a little bit more demanding, you know, which involved uh, fancy banquets uh, with people who maybe weren't as nice. <laughs> yeah, there's the worst. 
Uh, I mean, and and you you would uh, draw all sorts of attention, obviously, and sometimes of the wrong sort. I remember you writing in your book that you drew suspicion, uh, not just in China, but also on your return to the U.S. Uh, to the extent that you're comfortable talking about it, you know, can you talk about why people, you know, somehow believed you were involved in an espionage? That you were <laughs> yeah, this is this is something I I got all the time. Um, you know, the question, you know, are you are you a journalist? Are you a spy? And you know, I think that I think that people are much more familiar with. Um, a very conspicuous out of town or poking around and asking questions if they're either a journalist or a spy. I mean, it, it might not have anything to do with reality and much more to do with, you know, you know, good TV shows and movies or things like that. Sure. But, you know, as, as a scholar who is conducting research on contentious issues in remote areas, you know, people were, I think, entirely justified to be concerned that, you know, I was either a journalist or a spy. Uh, and so I, I did a number of things in order to make it very clear that I was neither of those things. And for one, I, you know, I didn't really take very many pictures because that's a behavior that people uh. associate with journalists and spies. And so I actually have very few pictures of, of my field work. You know, a lot of it is preserved in my written field notes. Another thing, too, is that I, I didn't record people. Um, unless they specifically uh -huh. asked to be record because, recorded because they wanted their story uh, to be heard and remembered. And, and this, right. and eventually also, you know, because I did this over, over a number of years and visited multiple times, eventually the intrigue wore off. <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, it, oh, it's, oh, it's her. Yeah. She's, yeah. she's back. <laughs> but, you know, when I, uh, when I returned to the States, you know, I think that, that I was contacted by some of our three letter agencies, yeah. um, because they were, they were concerned that, um, I had potentially been recruited and uh -huh. they wanted to, to spy for China. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, that I think they wanted, they were just doing their due diligence to, to make sure that, uh, that I hadn't been, you know, paid any ridiculous sum of money in order to quote unquote, write a report about anything. Right, right, right. Um, and you know, it's the, uh, for me, the most important thing is, uh, to be able to pursue the questions with integrity, to not have to answer to someone else's agenda, whether that would be an editor or an agency or someone else with some other sets of interests. Like this is really, uh, the privilege and the freedom that, um, academic scholarship allows you to go places because the questions take you there and not because someone sent you to snoop. I got to think that one of the reasons that you did draw suspicion is that People who study rare earths are themselves pretty rare. No, I mean, from the set of skills and the disciplines that I think any kind of study of this would require, I, I can see how, you know, that might be. Because you, you, I mean, it's interesting how you, you came to take an interest in this. I, I'd love to hear the story because, you know, I don't know whether you set out deliberately to, you know, study rare earths and then decided to learn both Chinese and Portuguese Um because that's where the mining was taking place, or were you already literate in both of those languages, and then found a happy intersection? <laughs> or how, how, yeah, how <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's the second one. Oh, okay. um, right. So, uh, so this is you know the story that I'm about to tell. I, I like to tell it as as an argument to just for people to just 
go somewhere and learn a language because you have no idea where it's going to lead you. I mean, oh, what I sure. tell my students is there is no substitute for being in the field. Um, and so for me, I mean, I learned, I first learned Portuguese as a teenager because I was luckily enough, I was lucky enough to be a Rotary International Exchange student to Brazil. Oh, cool. Um, and yeah, that was a wonderful, wonderful experience, you know, sort of, uh, late nineties. And so I was full of multicultural ideals. And so I just, I decided that I, the next language I wanted to learn was the one that was spoken by one sixth of humanity. And so I set my sights on China and uh, found a way to support myself, um, uh, which was, of course, by teaching English, which a lot of people do. And I intentionally went to a kind of out of the way city um, so that I would have uh, fewer temptations to uh, not speak Mandarin every right, day. Right, right. And, you know, for the longest time, I had no idea how um, how I would draw the two worlds together, um, you know, the Portuguese speaking world and the Chinese speaking world. And this is now I'm I'm sort of aging myself here. But then in 2004, um, the leaders of Brazil and China started talking to each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this was a relatively novel development. And uh, folks on either side were uh, knew very little about the other. And there were very few people who were in a in a position to be able to translate and to facilitate uh, sort of cross-cultural dialogue. And since my interests are with environment and development anyway, um, I started pursuing uh, pursuing those those relationships. So, you know, I worked with uh, environmental organizations. Um, I worked with researchers. Um, for a while, I was a projects coordinator on a National Science Foundation pro- funded project uh, in the Himalayas. So I was oh, wow. the on-the-ground person uh, doing... Uh, ethnographic research in villages um, in eastern Yunnan or in western Yunnan I mean and um, and eventually I just I there was I knew there was a story that needed to be told about disinvestment and deindustrialization from China's uh, hinterlands uh-huh. and uh, China's overseas investment to Brazil and investment in extractive industries and increased deforestation and all of that happening on the ground. I knew there was a story to tell there and I didn't know how on earth I could possibly begin to tell that. So, you know, I went to grad school. <laughs> As one does. As one does, yeah. I mean, but you, you found the perfect story. I mean, because that's exactly what we're talking about here. Because, you know, the, the real story here uh, that's that's told in your book is about Beijing's decision to curtail production of rare earths after, I guess, 2010. And, to, you know, to give up its dominant position and become, in fact, a, a net importer of rare earths. But, you know, in so doing, of course, they they kind of just shift the, um, what would you call it, the global division of toxic labor. I mean, they send the problem somewhere else, right? I mean, and in mm-hmm. this case, it's Greenland and Afghanistan and Brazil, right? And Myanmar. And Myanmar, right. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about Beijing's decision to curtail that? I mean, was it really, I mean, was it driven primarily by environmental concerns, by a desire not to deplete uh, the strategic reserves that China had? Uh, what was, what drove that decision and what were the consequences of it? I would say it's a, it's all of the above. Um uh, the extent of the environmental and epidemiological devastation created by decades of not just um, environmentally destructive rare earth mining, but particularly around processing and waste management, uh, had created a series of sustained 
social conflicts, right? So uh, villagers were mobilizing, journalists were helping them, NGOs were involved. You know, this was uh, sympathetic uh, scientists at, at research institutes from the municipal to the national level had decades of work petitioning the government, engaging in protests, conducting citizens' arrests, demanding that something be done about the contamination of the soil and water and ultimately bodily tissues of the people who lived immediately downstream of these operations. Mm-hmm. And so that combined with very good research, very detailed research on the extent of different forms of soil and water pollution that prompted together with you know these issues that were happening and had been building in other parts of the country that prompted a uh, a new policy initiative to reevaluate the economic future for resource exhausted regions mm. <laughs> so that's the sort of you can tell that i'm translating from mandarin right. <laughs> <laughs> as, um you know as i as i say that for you but it's um but basically yeah, so one, yeah, there is a resource conservation interest there as well. But two, and I think much more uh, significantly, it's it's in response to social pressure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, China's strategy has been for quite a while now to transition from being a net exporter to a net importer. Um, they've been a net importer now for a couple of years. And by sending the industry somewhere else, it is simply a page out of the development playbook of the U.S. and the West. Right. Which is, you know, develop first, clean up later, send the problem to someone else. So they develop and then clean up later. Right. It's (laughs) so there's nothing particularly innovative about what we're seeing, um, which I think is worth pointing out because, you know, the media and policy treatment of anything that China does in the rare space tends to be treated with (laughs) uh, alarm. What's interesting, though, is is that when they do sort of move the problem to another geography, that geography has a lot in common with, you know, where the problem was in China. I mean, in other words, when we're talking about northwestern Brazil, the area around San Gabriel de Cachoeira, it's, it's similar, too. I mean, there are parallels, too. I mean, so you've told the story about how the PRC state didn't set out to dominate global supplies of rare earths, but, you know, it did set out to control a frontier to build this red hinterland and, you know, initially in cooperation with, with the Soviet Union to secure national borders. And, you know, that's sort of what brought around, brought about this, you know, big mining operation north of the Balto. But now as they push it, as, you know, you look at it at uh, a later developing area, like in Brazil, can you, can you lay out what some of the, the, the similarities are? Another frontier region. Yeah. Yeah, so this is really, you know, the the central question uh, in my book was, you know, given the relative ubiquity of rare earth elements in the Earth's crust, why is the geography of their extraction so strange? Right. You know, concentrated as it is in these far-flung, remote, and frankly, contested areas. Um, And so a couple of immediate parallels between uh, Inner Mongolia and uh, our Bauto and São Gabriel de Cachoeira in the northwestern Brazilian Amazon is, you know, these are both places that are the ancestral homelands of indigenous people who have multiple millennia of continuous historical memory. Right. So in on the Inner Mongolian steppe, of course, I'm talking about um, uh, the pastoralists, yeah. Mongolian, yeah, nomadic pastoralists, and um, in São Gabriel de Cachoeira and vicinity. 
that is an area of, you know, it's, you have a combination of nomadic and semi-sedentarized or seasonal, seasonally migratory indigenous peoples. There's quite a bit more ethnic diversity. Uh, there's at least 30 separate recognized um, ethnic groups in the, in the area that I'm working in, and then many more different languages spoken among those besides. Uh, but I think the parallel that we can draw here is that um, mining in these places uh, was first about the state figuring out a way to incorporate this historically autonomous region into the national territory. And if you think about it, if you think about what a mining operation does, it erases everything else on the surface, right. literally, physically, <laughs> you know, blows it to smithereens, yeah. scrapes off all the subsoils, cuts down all the trees. And of course, the social, the, the social fabric uh, that was part of that is, of course, also similarly displaced, if not destroyed, but certainly subjugated. And so building a large scale industrial or mining operation in a remote, historically contested place is a way for, you know, whether it's a, a government, whether it's the government of a state or empire to discipline a historically autonomous, undisciplined, undisciplined place. Yeah. And so with with Bauto and Bayan Obo, I mean, you know, this was a this was a place that was fiercely contested. Uh, you know, during the Japanese occupation, uh, Japanese geologists were aware of the mineral resources in the region. But even before Japanese occupation, right, it was uh, the homeland of Mongolian pastoralists. But then they also had extensive trade routes with Turkic peoples in Central Asia mm -hmm. that had their own ideas about what a government or a country should look like that didn't look at all like the Han Chinese vision. And in early 20th century China, uh, particularly among Han Chinese leadership, like there was a living memory of these border disputes. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right. And so sort of in a different way, in the Amazon region in Brazil, if you talk to a sort of military strategist or planner in Brazil's capital city, Brasilia, you know, they'll talk about the Amazon as a sort of problem to be solved. Right. It's untamed. It's undeveloped. Um, you know, the people there are uncivilized. And so, you know, within that perspective, you know, they're setting up this region as a frontier, as a problem to be solved. And, you know, according to a certain de uh, economic developmentalist framework, one way to solve those problems is to... Uh, set up a mining operation because then you have industry, then you have then you have jobs that uh, contribute to the GDP, and then you have exports which which contributes to foreign exchange and this sort of thing. And so, it it's a very heavy. It's sort of like a sledgehammer in the toolkit of national development. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. guess if I could put it if I could put it that way. No, that, that puts it very well. Um, and I think you make that point really forcefully. Um. Not really a question, but I, I want to note that, you know, you do put your finger on some of the really huge ironies when it comes to rare earths. And I mean, feel free to expand on these points if you want to. But one is the utter dependence of our greenest technologies, you know, renewables uh, on elements uh, that the you know production of which is so environmentally destructive. Right. So, you know, uh, neodymium, which, which is, as I was saying earlier, had like wickedly powerful magnetic properties. I, I was astonished of how much actually goes into wind turbines. Uh, in your book, you know, you say that a two megawatt wind turbine 
requires 360 kilograms of neodymium, uh, neodymium, and and like 60 kilograms of dysprosium. I mean, that's that's nuts. I mean, then, you know, these things are all over the landscape, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important to talk about the supply chains for our renewable energy technologies. Yeah, um, yeah. Because in order to accelerate the transition away from fossil fueled economies to renewable uh, fueled economies, the the hard truth is that, you know, more of these elements are needed. And so it is really important to take a hard, unflinching look at the realities of the supply chain. It is also important to to point out, though, that rare earth elements are used for any kind of energy generation, not just renewable, but also yeah. big hydro. They're used for uh, petroleum refining, and they're also used for nuclear energy generation. So no matter where you fall on the what we should do with our energy grid <laughs> debate, rare earths are part of the picture. Mm-hmm. Um and so on one hand, I really appreciate the scrutiny around uh, the transition to green, to greener and renewable energy. On the other hand, I do also want to signal that this has been, you know, this is a critique that's also been advanced in bad faith, you know, in an attempt to mischaracterize, um, you know, renewable energy right. production somehow as the only thing that has a dirty supply chain, when in fact they all do. Yeah. And no yeah. matter what we do with our energy grid, we have to clean up the supply chains. The, uh, the people who advance that bad faith argument are also the ones who are always talking about how we need to modernize our weapons platforms. And there, there's another thing where, I mean, the, the most advanced green tech uses it, but also our most advanced death tech um, weapons platforms use just a, a ton of, of rare earths as well, which is another, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, long. and advanced robotics, um, yeah. you know, the the infrastructure necessary for advanced computing and AI. Um all, all of these things require rare earth elements in some form. And so really the interesting thing about rare earths is that, you know, they, because they're used so broadly, they really kind of reflect the best and worst of our society right back at us. Um, be, oh, go ahead. Uh, I'm just, interestingly, today, uh, this, this very day, I watched along with, you know, probably half of America as uh I mean, you know, and I think we were all practically in tears as Perseverance landed successfully on on Mars. Uh, again, you know, probably a lot mm-hmm. of of rare earth elements went into the creation of, of that rover, and you know, the the, the helicopter that they're going to be launching. Um, so far, no terrestrial power has started mining the moon yet, but your inclusion of it as as one of the three places that you focus on which I think was just fascinating. I mean, it really drives some of your point, right? That this whole scarcity myth and this consigning of, of toxic labor to the remote frontier. I mean, with the moon, it's kind of the ultimate expression of nimbyism, right? I mean, this is like why like, humanity chooses to mine rare earths where it has. Now let's let's take it off the earth entirely. Can, can you talk about what extant plans there are um, in the United States or in China or in other powers for actual lunar mining? I mean, how, how far along has this come? Oh, it's, it's interesting. I think the most surprising thing about uh, the plans to mine the moon or other celestial bodies is actually just how advanced uh, the plans and technology are. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So uh, just to give you an example, in, in 2015, I attended an off-earth mining conference at the engineering school at the University of New South Wales in Australia. And uh, engineering master's students were presenting their research findings, which included answering questions that had been posed to them by NASA along the lines of, 
in order to support a crewed mission to Mars of 10 to 100 people, uh, how much would the equipment that you need to take in order to extract water from stone, how much would that weigh? Wow. So <laughs> already in that question, right, we know that the, that the techniques for um, extracting water from hard rock <laughs> are sufficiently developed that it's just a matter of how much the technology weighs. Oh, my God. Um, right. And this was in 2015. And these master's students were uh, being asked these questions. So it gives you a sense of, of how far along things are. Um, so an interesting thing happened with respect to uh, the race to mine rare earths in outer space. So, you know, I, I mentioned earlier on how uh, when The New York Times broke the story that China had, you know, quote unquote, embargoed rare earth elements to Japan, people had to learn very quickly, OK, what are rare earth elements? And uh, oh, my goodness, they're in everything. And oh, my goodness, China produces most of them. And so they jumped to the obvious but incorrect conclusion that, oh, so China must supply most rare earth elements because China has most of the rare earth elements. Ergo, the only way to beat China is to figure out how to get these things from the moon. <laughs> and so, you know, this is something that makes sense if you uh, don't have any basic geological knowledge, right? If you didn't even bother to look up whether there are mineable rare earth deposits in the United States, or whether, for example, there's any potential um, for recycling uh, rare earth bearing technological components in order to reduce our, our need to dig new holes in the ground. Um, right. And so, you know, this fervor to, to beat China by mining rare earths on the moon, uh, you know, it really fit into uh, the, the broader currents of paranoia around China's progress uh, with their space agency, around, uh, you know, the, the threat or the ghost or, or the threat or the, or the specter of China potentially, um, you know, withholding its exports of rare earth elements to the rest of the world. Uh, to, you know, create a narrative that the only way to beat China and also save the environment and also get the elements that are crucial to powering our society, whether you're worried about the military or you're worried about green tech or whatever, the only way to solve all these problems was to mine the moon. And it would be one thing if this was just a crazy idea propagated by a couple of, you know, uh, fringe paranoid folks. But, um, you know, this idea percolated through to the White House, to Congress, uh, so much so that uh, Thanksgiving of uh, 2015, uh, Obama signed the Space Act into law, which recognizes the private property rights of U.S. citizens to outer space resources and grants them the right to sue in a U.S. court anyone who attempts to impinge on their exercise of private property in outer space. And so this was presented by uh, the people who were sort of propagating this narrative that we had to mine the moon in order to save ourselves. This this was presented as the only solution, right? If we're good, those same people must be must be uh, convinced that China is also pursuing that, though. Yeah. Yeah, and so here's the interesting thing. Um, you know, geological explorations of the moon and other celestial bodies, it's a standard part of national space programs. Um, but because so we're in this really strange and kind of surreal situation now in 2021, where because a, a certain subset of, you know, politically well-connected uh, population in the U.S. was 
convinced that China was going to um, build a lunar base and lock up all those rare earth elements in addition to already having all of these elements on Earth, right? Because they were so convinced that the only way to beat China was to figure out how to mine the moon, they effectively kicked off a race to figure out how to mine in outer space. Because now other countries uh, are like, well, you know, if the U.S. is is developing uh, the technique and technology to mine the moon or asteroids or potentially Mars, uh, we better figure that out, too. Right. So it's kind of a new, like extractive driven space race. I don't know if you watched the show The Expanse or if you've read the books. Uh, I've heard about it. I haven't watched it yet, though. (laughs) Yeah. A major plot point is, I mean, that that they're, you know, it's in the far, far flung future, but. Uh, we've we're mining extensively, not just the asteroid belt, not just the moon, which is a big you know human colony there, but Mars and uh, the many of the moons of of the outer planets. Mm. It's crazy. Yeah, I think it is worth noting though that there is a scenario under which mining in outer space makes perfect sense. Um, it is not <laughs> to you know mine things in outer space to bring back to Earth because you know, we don't want to recycle. That's right. that's not the scenario under which it makes sense. It does make sense in order to support longer term space exploration. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so from that standpoint, um, you know, there's, I, I would venture to guess that the majority of the people who are invested in figuring out how to mine in outer space are actually doing it from that standpoint. And it's sort of a loud minority that are beating the rare earth drum. <laughs> well, recently, rare earths are in the news again. I mean, at the top of the, of, of the hour, we started talking about there was this Financial Times report that I just saw uh, that says that China's MIT, the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology, is looking into whether export controls on rare earths uh, would be able to cripple uh, U.S. production of the F-35 fighter, which uses, in, in the report, it says 417 kilograms of rare earths per plane. Um, and, you know, the story quotes congressional testimony from somebody named Ellen Lord, uh, who apparently ran defense acquisitions until last year, um, saying, you know, that China floods the market to destroy any competition anytime somebody else starts mining or producing. It, it, let's just look at that piece of it. Is that true? Does China flood the market with rare earths anytime they start to see, for example, the U.S. start mining operations in, say, Greenland or Afghanistan or, or wherever? <laughs> the short answer is no. And I okay. think the part that's not told in the story of, of defense acquisitions is that, you know, for the most part, uh, the defense acquisitions folks uh, have been perfectly happy with China being the primary supplier of rare earth elements because it's low cost and high quality. Huh. That's interesting. Yes, this is why it has been so difficult to rebuild the rare earth supply chain in the United States, because it would be more expensive. Now that, that China has sort of really, really ramped down and is, is actually a net importer of rare earths, who are the major producers now? Is it Brazil, chiefly? So it's interesting. Um, so now that China is a net importer of rare earth elements, um, rare earths are coming from a number of different places, from Southeast Asian countries. Um, Myanmar mm-hmm. is highest profile. Uh, there have been a number of uh, geological prospecting activities in uh, Central Asian uh, states that are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Brazil, the U.S., Canada, and a handful of countries in Africa are um, supplying uh, raw or minimally processed rare earth elements to China. And so here's another important piece of the piece of the puzzle for the U.S. You know, often uh, the need to 
somehow reduce the U.S.'s dependence on China. It's often framed just in terms of, you know, needing to open up more mines. But here's the thing. We aren't dependent on China for the raw material. We're dependent on China for the processing and the value-added technological components right, that we then right. use. And so really where the investment needs to be is in rebuilding the supply chain within the U.S. We could, we could open 100 mines uh, in the U.S. and it wouldn't change the situation. We'd still be sending the material right. to China to be processed. And and the processing. I mean, if we if we were to do that, that's also just extraordinarily destructive. Though I mean, it's environmentally. Really, I mean, it, at least I'm given to understand that. I mean, maybe not as bad as the actual mining, but. Well, I would say actually that's where a lot of the funky chemicals get involved and where the energy demands right. are highest. And so um, along those lines, there's, there's been some pretty positive developments. Um, so there is an operating rare earth mine in Mountain Pass in Southern California, and mm -hmm. uh, they've really done a lot a lot of work to uh, correct or atone for the sins of, of the previous owners. So, for example, they... Uh, now recycle most of their water on site. There's no piping any of it off site. And uh, they also developed um, an acid free separation process. So they're not using, you know, the nasty acids or things like that in order to perform their, their sort of initial steps of, of processing and separation. And so we've seen overall, I mean, within the industry and in a way that really doesn't make headlines at all, uh, there's been a lot of really important work in cleaning up the actual operations, both in the U.S. to the extent that it's possible within our uh, still inadequate policy framework, um, and, and certainly much more extensively in China. And so this is actually, this is an area that I think is ripe for cooperation. Um, yeah, yeah. Be between the two countries. It just, it's unfortunately, it keeps on getting uh, framed and mischaracterized. Right, right. <laughs> in, a, in a pretty destructive way. That's a real pity. I mean, Julie, well, thank you so much for taking the time. What a fantastically interesting topic this is. I mean, uh, I cannot recommend your book more highly. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to share your insights and your rich knowledge on this subject. The book, again, is called the Rare Earth Frontier. You can pick up a, a digital copy online. I think it's like just 12 bucks mm -hmm. or something. It's really, it's a really good deal. Um, good meaty 400 page read. Mm -hmm. uh, we will leave you a link in the show notes for that. Julie, let's move on to recommendations. Let me quickly remind listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. And the best thing you can do to support the work that we do with Seneca and with the other shows in the network is to subscribe to SubChina Access, our daily newsletter. Also, do take time to check out and subscribe to the new China Stories podcast, our one-stop shop to listen to some of the best journalism on China-related topics, long-form stories from outlets like The Wire China, Protocol China, Sixth Tone, uh, Caixin Global, The Week China, and, of course, our own home site, Sup China. Check it out. You know, if you don't like to hear Chinese words butchered and the tones pronounced incorrectly, uh, here's your place. Now, on to recommendations. <laughs> Julie, what you got for us? All right. Well, uh, there's a couple of things I would like to recommend. Um, so it's winter time, so it's time to cozy up with a good read. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I'm reading this fascinating book by Jamie Lorimer, who is another geographer um, in the UK, and it's called the, the Probiotic Life. And it's all about our growing fascination with microorganisms and all the different ways that uh, we're developing relationships with them, experimenting with them, uh, developing, you know, some pseudoscientific nonsense, and then some other very good, interesting stuff, 
all told in a really uh, wonderful imaginative way that allows you to travel down to the microscopic level. That's what I'm wow. reading and it's really fun. <laughs> that's just, that's such an interesting topic. But anyway, so yeah, that, that's a book that I'm reading. It's really wonderful. Jamie Lormer, huh? Okay. Yeah. I was supposed, I should and tell you something more fun too as well, right? No, that's, that's fun enough, but go on for sure. Yeah, so it's lockdown one. and I live in uh, the beautiful area of Northwest Delaware, right on the Delaware, Pennsylvania, Maryland border. And there's mm -hmm. lots of parks. And so I've been walking around outside. I recommend going outside whenever, <laughs> whenever possible, even if it's muddy, even if you fall yeah. down, get your pants dirty. It's definitely worth it. Those are great recommendations. So I, I want to recommend an excellent piece uh, by the writer Tim Deschant in The Wired China. Uh, it's a long piece. I actually narrated it for China Stories, which is the podcast I just told you about. Uh, it's called The Chip Choke Point. Uh, it's about the astonishing EUV, the uh, extreme ultraviolet lithography machines that are made by this Netherlands-based company called ASML uh, and the struggle that China has had trying to advance its own semiconductor industry in the face of you know all these export restrictions uh, and entity listing under the Trump administration. It's continuing under the Biden administration. Uh, it's really an exemplary piece of, of you know popular writing on uh, a very difficult technology um, and you know which is what reminded me of, of this was reading your book you know I think you're, you do a masterful job of explaining difficult things uh, in in a way a layperson can totally understand um, thank you yeah so yeah the, the, the author is is really great at, at making difficult technology uh, accessible to the layperson uh, so yeah it's called the, uh, the chip choke point in the wire China and check it out on China stories Julie, thank you so much. That was so much fun. Yeah, this is great. Thank you. And thanks for... Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> keep me apprised of the work you're doing. Anything that touches on China, we'd love to have you back on. All right. Excellent. Yeah. Um, my current work is on outer space. <laughs> oh, well, that's that's cool, too, because there's a China dimension to that. Oh, yeah, there is. Sure. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. A year, a year and a half ago now, um, I, I was in Algeria and Nigeria. I was um, looking at uh, China's space cooperation with different African countries. Um, oh, wow. So that might be another dimension <laughs> to do let's in the do future. It. Yeah. yeah, let's definitely do it. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good one. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.